Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and I will be your host today as always as we dive into this next episode. Now we are getting near the end of a series we've been doing on technocracy. So if you are new to this episode or new to the podcast as a whole, then ideally go back to the beginning of this series in order to kind of get an idea of what in the world we're talking about. If you start here, you are going to be at least to some extent lost. Now, the first episode of the current series that we're doing right now would be 3.21, and that was titled Technocracy Frameworks and Strategies for Liberty. And I believe that's it, at least. Judging on the title and description, that appears to be it. So that's where you should start or ideally go back to episode one. But otherwise, you should continue to listen to this episode, and hopefully you are caught up up to this point. So what we've done so far is looked at the idea of technocracy through some more material hierarchical perspectives and concepts and philosophies. That would be as we were looking through the lens of Machiavelli's The Prince, Orwell's 1984, and Bentham's The Panopticon Writings. And then I kind of bridged the gap between that and something that's a little more immaterial, something that's more broad and rhizomatic, so to say. And that would be the look into Brave New World and Plato's Republic, and the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. And that's what we just wrapped up with in the previous episode. And now we are going to move on. Now, I did have a final set of illusions, but I'm not going to break it down to the extent that I had done the previous ones. So when I introduced this concept of looking at technocracy through these lenses and using different illusions and different philosophies, I broke it down between a material and immaterial view, like I have just kind of referenced and overviewed. But in addition to that, it was secular and religious. So the illusions that I've used, these two groups that I just talked about, were the material and immaterial versions of the secular enactment of technocracy. And now what I will cover more in brief will be the religious side of possible technocracy. So this is something that I have said I am personally uh, not convinced will be what actually happens, but hey, theoretically, it could happen, and it's something that people are striving for, so it should be covered, in my opinion. I'm covering all of the options and looking at how they play out, and I do think that they all have an impact. They all will play a role. So even if this religious version of a more theocratic society doesn't fully take hold, I think some aspects of it and the battle to try to manifest it will have a big impact and it is worth understanding. So with this, we've got also a more material hierarchical version as well as a more immaterial version. This episode, I am going to use all three illusions for the more material hierarchical structured version of a religious technocracy. And the plan will be for the following episode next week to cover the more immaterial version of a religious technocracy, so to say, or an alternative to technocracy. I think that will be more fitting for the following episode. But for this episode, the illusions that I'm using are uh, St. Augustine's The City of God and the 
uh, I guess, historical account of Calvin in Geneva, as well as the, I guess, theological philosophy of theonomy. And I will kind of go over in brief what each of these are and how these relate, and we'll talk about these in the same way that I talked about the other secular writings, where I'm not giving an overview or a summary of the entire set of writings or whatever. I'm not covering all the philosophies that these authors talked about and these people talked about. I am just using them as an example and picking out some parts that are relevant for what we're doing. And what we are doing is looking at how things will likely play out and how trends are going and what people are pushing for in relation to this concept of technocracy. By this point, especially in this season and uh, kind of the, the intermittent area in between season two and season three, I think it's been very clear, even season two, I've, I've made it pretty clear that technocracy is here and is coming. It is and yet is not yet. And this is something that is just a fact at this point. And so the question becomes, what does this actually look like as it evolves, as it fully manifests, as this becomes more dominant and more clear? And so that's what we've been doing. And at least in my opinion and the way I am looking at this, we have been living in somewhat of a material technocracy so far. And this is a more status technocracy. And we're shifting into something that's more of a corporate, more immaterial technocracy. That is kind of the evolution of this. At the same time, there is a push for a religious bent to a governing society to how we should structure things and manage things and organize people, these types of ideas. And I did discuss earlier in this season the idea of secular religion and the roles that that plays and how important that was to the idea of transhumanism and technocracy and how that would kind of underlie the cultural aspect and especially the immaterial aspects of shifting into that worldview, and that's where we're headed. And so I I will also say that there are non-secular religions, specifically Christianity, that also have a huge impact in the culture and the way things are going and the fights that people are engaging in politically, the direction people think that, I guess, governance should go for society— And so that is worth talking about. That does have a huge impact, just like secular religion has a new impact. That's a newer thing. It's a little shinier. But Christianity is an older thing and much, much more rooted, and I would say a much bigger impact, even if it's not creating as much change as these secular movements are creating right now. They're not as obvious. It is still something that is the foundation of Western society. That's a pretty big deal. So, with that in mind, I want to cover this idea of a religious technocracy, and it, it's not really the same. So I guess the way that I should frame this from the get-go is that, in a way, it is technocracy by more of a pure definition. Technocracy is this idea of managing and governing a society outside of the realm of politics and government. It's about resource management. It's about social engineering. It's about 
guiding an economy and a population into something that is efficient and effective. And the way this is done is through science. It's through experts. It's through data and information and technology. That is how these things are implemented. Now, in the world we live in today, if you look at this from a religious perspective, if you look at anything political from a religious perspective, you're still going to have those same components. You're still going to have a technological society that uses data and information and science and technology in order to make decisions and gather information and manage people and resources, all these things. That is just the world we live in. We are in a technocratic age. That's kind of just the way it is. So you could refer back to Zbigniew Brzezinski in the book Between Two Ages, and he talks about uh, the world coming into this technotronic age, and that's exactly what's happening. And so when you look at ideas of how to organize things from a religious standpoint, uh, in the modern time in a technological society, this is going to be Uh, more technocratic from the technological aspect, definitely, but also from the governance aspect when we look at these specific illusions that I'm using, which is kind of why I'm using them. And in these specific ones, they are interested in having governance over society without having a political state be the one that makes all of the decisions and chooses what is right and wrong and handles punishment and handles all these other things, that is not their solution. They want to manage things differently. But instead of doing a more purely scientific approach to assessing and analyzing data and making cold, calculated decisions, they want to use a religious lens. But they are still going to be using the information and using the technology in order to implement this religious framework, just like the secular technocracy is doing the same thing to implement the scientific framework. It is a very similar deal. The scientists and the experts are very similar. It's just not just scientists as the experts in a secular sense. It is more theologians as experts in a religious sense. So you have a lot of crossover, but also some differences there. So I guess where I will start will be, I'll go chronological, and we'll start with City of God by Augustine. And this was a book that is, I will start off by saying it's very long. So all of these other books, I have highly recommended that you read them. City of God, I still recommend you read it, sure, but I will admit that I have not even read the entire thing. I have tried, and it's a bit much. And so I have read some of it, and I have definitely done plenty of summaries and interviews and things like that about it and discussing the different topics and that kind of thing. So I I just want to give you that warning. It's not like the rest that are much shorter. And the same is true of all three of these. Calvin was a person, and uh, this historical time period of him in Geneva is not just this short book that you can read. And same with the idea of theonomy as well. It's kind of the same deal. So while I do recommend these things, I, I can't necessarily say, hey, read this 150-page book and you've got it. Uh, that's not quite how this goes. But with this being said, Augustine was writing around the time of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and he was in this context of being a part of Rome that was considered a Christian nation 
and it was falling apart all around him. And he was dealing with these issues of the city of man and the city of God. He had this two cities approach. If you've heard of the two kingdoms theology, it's kind of similar, although it is not the same thing. And what he does with the city of God is that on one hand, he is specifically looking into this. But on the other hand, he's basically giving an entire account of all of human history because he goes all the way back to creation. He talks about uh, other people's beliefs and the beliefs of the Roman gods and all of these things and tries to refute a lot of the things that were being said at the time, such as the fact that Christianity is the reason why Rome is falling and it's because we turned our backs on the old gods and so we are being punished and that's why things are falling. It's the fault of the Christians. That was something that was definitely being leveled against the Christians at the time. And Augustine spends plenty of time dealing with that, but also just history as a whole. And he relates all of history through this lens of a two cities perspective. And you could uh, kind of say two kingdoms perspective. That's more how I've been phrasing things. And it does mostly fit, at least. So if I mistakenly use that term, that's where that comes from. And so... The way he looked at things was that there was the city of man, and that was a physical city that was seeking pleasure and fulfilling the senses, more of a sensate concept of living life and the goals and aspirations of people. And that was the city of man. And the city of God was specifically oriented towards pleasing God, doing what God wants us to do and being in line with the order that God has established. So the way that Augustine looked at all things was that all things were created by God. And therefore, anything created by God is good. And he goes back to Genesis where God creates XYZ and says, behold, it is good. And so he says that creation is a good thing. And you go back to Plato for an Aristotle for some similar, at least, perspectives. But Augustine doesn't say that, therefore, there is no such thing as evil, because evil does exist, and he rightfully acknowledges that and talks about that a good bit. But the way that he looks at it is that creation in its pure form is good, and all things are good at their root. And let's say that uh, Satan, for example, as a person was a good creation that then was corrupted by evil. So it's not that God created something evil. God created something good, and that good thing turned to evil. And so he does deal with this idea of original sin and other doctrines like this, and he does recognize, for the most part, what most modern Christians would follow in the Protestant camp, and as well as most of probably the Catholic camp as well, although I'm not as familiar with them, but it would make perfect sense that the Catholics would be on board with Augustine, and he has had a lot of influence on the Catholic Church. So This is how he kind of divides history and divides the world and follows this through the uh, historical narrative that he can cover up to his, his point in time. And the key here that he really draws out is that evil is a perversion or a departure from God's design. So he says, again, that all things were created 
good. All things were good. And creation at its core is good. But when I say at its core is good, it doesn't mean that all people deep down inside are nothing but good and there's just a little bit of evil corruption on the top. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that as God created things and reality, he created them in a state of being good. But those things have become corrupt and evil has come into the picture and there are perversions. And if you want to define what is a corruption, what is a departure, what is a perversion, it's something that goes against God's original creation, God's original design. That's going against God, and that is, by definition, evil. So, this should sound very familiar to you, like many things end up doing, if you go back to the episodes I did on the natural order. That was kind of my whole argument there, was that there is this natural order, the way that things work and operate and interoperate together, and this would be a way to define good. And the opposite of that, the perversion of that, would be something more akin to evil. So you have the light versus the darkness, the good versus the evil, the city of God versus the city of man, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. These are the dichotomies that exist. And this is what Augustine is talking about, at least to an extent. I'm not going to, again, get into all of his stuff. But I, while I do totally agree with a lot of what he says and a lot of what he is discussing, like I think each one of these examples, especially theonomy, unfortunately, I vastly disagree with the final application of what they are saying. So with City of God, the way Augustine puts it, at least my understanding on the limited understanding I have on him in this giant book, would be that the city is not inherently evil, and having a city is not inherently evil. The people of the city that make up the city are not necessarily evil. A city, even the city of man, is seeking for peace and prosperity. That is ultimately the goal of a city, and those are not necessarily bad things. And so because of this, someone who is a Christian and following in line with God's order, they actually should be a good citizen from a more political perspective in the sense of being a part of seeking peace and protection and prosperity for the other residents of the city and be involved in the city of man from that perspective. And that makes sense. And I think we can all see why he would think such a thing and why most people actually think such a thing. And so uh, that would be his argument. So with this, the way he is arguing it, if you applied that to modern times, that would be to say that the secular world, as well as the religious world, we are all seeking a world of peace. We are all seeking to end world hunger and poverty and all these bad things that exist in the world. And so we should all work together and do our part to make another step towards these goals and continue to make these steps towards these goals and grow closer and closer so that we can bring the world to a better place. 
And sure, that sounds great. And that probably has been spoken out of the mouths of people with the World Economic Forum and Davos and Bilderberg Group and the eugenicists and all kinds of people that I, I think a lot of us would probably not agree with quite so much. But it sounds good. It's the whole sustainable development idea and that whole push, that concept. It's all about, if you read their stated goals, I believe all of those are in their stated goals, the ending poverty, the world peace, all these wonderful things. And so uh, according to an Augustinian perspective, the Christian should participate within the structure of the city, within the city of man, within the government or the political realm to the extent of seeking these things, uh, peace, protection, prosperity, goodness, to bring the world into something more in line with the way God designed it. So, yes, this makes a lot of sense. And I will, I think I'm going to hold off on my criticism. I'm going to attempt to hold off on my criticisms of these and my arguments uh, on the other side of these until the probably next episode. But I, this is not necessarily my personal opinion. Like all of the other illusions that I've covered, I've talked about a lot of stuff and I disagree with a lot of the stuff. But I am trying to make the argument from the perspective of the author and from the perspective of each one of these ideas and philosophies. So that would be the city of God concept, at least from a very rough macro perspective. Now, moving on to some very similar aspects from Calvin. So John Calvin was a very huge influence after the Reformation. A lot of the settlers into North America come from this Calvinist perspective theologically, and a lot of modern Protestants stem from Calvin's theology, at least a lot of it. And Calvin, the person, at one point was in Geneva, Switzerland, and he basically took over the city. And he left at one point and came back, and people said that if he left again, the whole city would crumble, and he has to stay, and he stayed for a long time. And he basically established a city that was a theocratic dictatorship of sorts. So with this city, he wanted to structure something in line with what the Bible says, how a society should be. And he structured this off of a scripture, off of having this group of God's people and how they should act and operate, how even how the structure and governance should be organized. So he had elders that were in charge and they would make decisions and councils would make decisions. There wasn't a king. There wasn't a ruler per se. There wasn't necessarily a government per se. It was more these councils and groups of elders that would come together and uh, deliberate and make decisions and people would respect that, these types of things. And there, there are accounts of people coming to the city and saying that they've never seen a cleaner place. They've never seen a place with without any homeless people or beggars on the streets. And there are a lot of positive things about this city, the way it was. There was a lot of peace. There was a lot of charity. This was a great and wonderful place for Protestants. And it was very successful from those criteria. However, this was a place that was enforcing Protestant doctrine, which 
at the very minimum, is not the entirety of Christianity, although they believe that they are right on all these counts, and that's why they believe them and follow them. There are plenty of people that will claim to be Christians and trace their heritage very far back that have different views and opinions that Calvin and his other folks at Geneva would strongly disagree with. Not only disagree with, but punish. Not only punish, but there is one famous account of a man being burned because he didn't believe in the Trinitarian doctrine that the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church believed in. So he was actually going to be burned by the Catholics. He fled to Geneva thinking that he would be safe and that uh, Calvin and the Protestants would bring him in. And they did, but they still burned him and he still died. So uh, I wouldn't say that's a positive thing. And there are other examples of people that were labeled as heretics and punished and even killed. And I will not support that personally. There is also the issue of penalizing sinful behavior. So they did get rid of all, what was it, all fortune tellers, I believe. They ended all taverns. Actually, they I think they got rid of the taverns and the fortune tellers. You got a fine if you went to a fortune teller, but there likely were no fortune tellers there to begin with. But if there was behavior that was deemed sinful, then there would be a penalty or a fine or you'd get kicked out of the city. And so that's how they handled things. Now, you could argue that that's very biblical. It's very Old Testament. That's the way that God said Israel should design their governance system and their society. And in many ways, that is true. So there's that. But at the same time, they were enforcing specifically their doctrine, not necessarily the entirety of God's law or the natural order or however you want to look at that. And so I I think we could all see how there are times when we as humans are wrong, and there are times when we know that something is right, and then it turns out that it was not, and we were wrong. And some of these matters, when you get into the scale of running an entire city and a governance system, uh, this is a life and death matter at times, if you make it that, and they did make it that. And so I, I don't personally believe that it would be very wise in this situation to do that. Now, the other thing is that this is a lot of coercion and forcing people into certain ways of living and acting. The whole free will aspect is not quite as respected as you might think out of Protestants. And, well, I guess that's part of the Calvinist theology is that he is big on predestination and this group of elect people that were destined to be basically saved and the non-elect were not. And it doesn't really matter. Some people would take it to the point of it doesn't really matter what you do. You're either elect or you're not. And that's going to show in the decisions you end up making in the future. And so that was kind of their view. And with that, you can see how it would make more sense that, oh, well, someone is doing this bad thing. Therefore, they're not one of the elect. And therefore, they don't belong within God's people here, within the city of God. And so let's kick them out. They don't belong here. Or they are going against God's law, and therefore they should be punished. Oh, their sin was so great that they actually need to be put to death, because they are putting at risk 
the other believers because they have these heresies that are going to draw people away from the faith, and this is a bad thing. Now, if people are predestined, I'm not sure exactly how that works, but uh, that is in, yeah, that's something probably not for this podcast in its entirety, but at a minimum, not now. So, uh, that was the idea of Calvin and having a city that he basically took over and ran theocratically and some of the issues there. And so you can imagine that if something like this was done in today's world, let's say in the United States of America, you have, let's make this easier, so to say. Um, let's say that the southern portion mainly the Southeast, but maybe all the way out to Texas, the very red Republican conservative portions of America seceded from the rest of the Union. And in doing so, they were unanimous and roughly unanimous. And the idea of going very conservative and religious and following Christian doctrine and Christian laws and Christian morals, and they were going to implement these in the law and basically pull a Calvin just on a bigger scale. And I'm sure you could see that this is something that many Republicans, conservatives, would be very fond of. This is something that they're trying to do. Many people are trying to do this. You get into the next topic of theonomy, and it takes this to another level. And so this is something that definitely is being pushed. And on the face of it, that is kind of the goal of the Republican Party, is to push Christian morality and Christian morals and principles onto the government, basically, which then pushes them onto the people through regulation and law and justice and these types of things. And so that's kind of what's trying to be done now. I would argue that it's very similar to the ideas coming out of the sustainable development movement, where, yes, it sounds very peachy keen. That sounds wonderful. That sounds like a utopia. Well, guess what? It's not. And when you really dig into it, that's not really what they're doing. You know, the Republican Party is the biggest war machine killing more people than the, you know, evil liberals on the other side. And so that, that's not necessarily a good thing. They're murdering innocent people. That, that's kind of bad. And so even though it's under this guise of being these conservative Christians and always doing the right thing and trying to enforce Christian morals on society and bringing about good, and no, that, that's not exactly it. I could make a similar argument for some more free market thinkers and basically bringing forth the technocracy that is not necessarily a good thing. And so... You've got that. And that's kind of, that's the idea of the push that I am talking about that is currently going on in today's world. And this is the more material push of actually getting in a Christian president and Christian representatives and changing Roe versus Wade so that abortions are illegal and all of these other things that we disagree with and the things we agree with. Maybe capital punishment is something that's biblical, and so therefore we need to have that in our laws in all the states, and we're going to push that through, and we're going to have real law and order and justice and these types of things. Again, that's obviously something that is happening in today's world. And if that were to become dominant and to win, if the, say, Christian conservative religion wins over the secular religions, then that's what you end up with, roughly. And uh, that is what I'm talking about, about a religious technocracy. That's where that goes. Now, the final and the third illusion that I have 
is the concept of theonomy or uh, reconstructionism. There are uh, many different branches of this, but the I don't know if he would be considered the founder, I think. I'm not really positive, to be honest. But Rush Dooney is an author that really defined what theonomy is, had a lot of really good writings and seminars and things that he had done. I believe it was in the 70s when he was coming out with this stuff. Uh, I believe it was 70s, pretty sure, mid-70s. But I'm not sure exactly what that span was. But in the 70s, and probably before and probably after, uh, was the time frame that we're talking about here. But basically, the main points that he brought out, he was, he was spot on for. I listened to this whole series of seminars that he did, and it was hours worth of content. And he did this entire seminar and worked all the way through all these different things and all these different doctrines and theology and history and civics and God's law and all of these things. And he was just spot on on so much of it. And I really liked it. And I really liked his views on everything. And then in the end, he kind of went a direction that I would totally disagree with. And so that part was unfortunate for me, but that's kind of just the way things go. And so with theonomy, his main argument is that God's law is supreme, that God's law is the law of all of creation, of all things, all reality. And God's law in one manifestation is Mosaic law. But it is also something revealed in other things. So when I talk about the natural order, I think he would mostly agree with that, that perspective, and mainly focus on Mosaic Law and use that as an example and template, I guess, because probably it's more concrete. But his argument would be that it's not just individuals who are accountable to God's law and will be judged according to God's law, it's nations as well. And biblically, nations are judged. And the definition of lawlessness is going against the law, not of the secular world, but of God, of God's law. And that is how individuals are judged in the end, and that is how nations are judged in the end. And so, therefore, if nations are accountable to God's law and are judged according to God's law, then nations should be brought in line with God's law. And that's how he believed things should go. And he pointed out many of the negative things about government and how it functions and how it's immoral, uh, some similar things to things that I have talked about as well. And uh, this is where the difference of opinion comes in. I'm not going to rehash all the things that totally agree with everything I have to say, but more about his opinions that are in line with this idea of religious technocracy. And that gets into the idea that Christians should work to bring nations in line with God's law, that that is what Christians should do because that is what is good and that is what everything is accountable to. All of reality is accountable to this. So we should try to bring reality in line with this. And yes, that does make sense. Now, in a lot of interviews and discussions and sermons that I've listened to related to theonomy, a lot of times they are talking about uh, using political means in order to enact biblical morality and law. And at the same time, I have also heard some, a, a vast minority of at least what I have listened to and read, that would say that according to theonomy as a philosophy or theology, 
coercion is wrong. And I guess where these kind of overlap here is that uh, what Rush Dooney said, and what a lot of them would say, is that what our job is, is to evangelize, that we need to have a reformation or a revival, a revolution, whatever you want to call it, of the culture first. We need to bring people individually to Christianity. And then we bring the nation to this transformed state, and it has this transformation into a nation that is biblical and following the law, and that that is the progression of how things should go. And if you do that, and people are totally in line with it, then there is no coercion, because that's what people want, because that's what people have been transformed into. And so, yes, that sounds great, but is that actually practical? In a lot of ways, no. But eh, theoretically, it could happen. And so that's how most would probably end up arguing if they are arguing it uh, with any effect. And they would probably go to that, that that would be the way things are handled. But either way, in both of the camps that I have listened to, and again, there are many branches of this theology, so I'm talking broadly here. But a lot of times what they would say is that if a law is in line with God's law, then it is good, and it should be supported, and it should be, it should exist. However, if a law is not in line with God's law, then it is bad, and it is wrong, and it should be fought against, and it should be rejected, and it should be changed, and it should be eliminated. And so that is the difference. Again, everything is accountable and judged according to God's law. And we need to bring the nations in line with God's law because that's what's right. And that's how God designed things. And so we should be instruments to help to make this happen. And that's part of our role in secular society to steer things toward this view of being in line with God's law. And so part of how we do this, according to uh, many theonomists, would be that we adapt the laws and regulations of our nation to be in line with the laws and regulations and morality and principles of God. And that is what they try to do, at least a lot of them. And that would obviously mean that you're using political means, you're using the government, you're using the state in order to bring in the following of God's law and the enactment of God's principles. Part of their worldview that overlaps, again, with things that I would agree with and that I've talked about before on this podcast would be this view of the kingdom of God. And I'll get much more into the kingdom of God perspective in the next episode. And I did talk a decent bit about that early on in season three of this season that I'm currently in. And so the idea is that the kingdom of God, at least they go back to the biblical view their interpretation of the biblical view of the future. And again, there's a lot you can hash out of that, but uh, let's go with that. And so they view the kingdom of God as being something that grows and eventually becomes dominant in the world, and all the nations uh, become under the jurisdiction of this new government, this righteous government that is led by Christ, and this is the implementation of the kingdom of God, that we're headed in that direction. Eventually, the kingdom of God will rule, and all 
things will be under his feet. And so this means that he will subject all nations, all kings, all individuals, and everything will be subject to him, and it will be a reality here on earth. And some would say that's the New Jerusalem, and that is heaven on earth. Some people would say that's before then, and Christ's thousand-year reign, and there's all these different arguments, and they really have very little relevance here, except for the fact that overall, they would believe, and by they, theonomists, they would view this, uh, I guess, idea of time and the future and how things will play out, the timeline of humanity and reality, they view it as something that is inevitable, that the kingdom of God will end up reigning and being supreme. And biblically, that is what is described. Again, plenty of arguments of, you know, what happens between A and B, but the end result of B is biblical, that the kingdom of God reigns supreme, and the current reality of A is just the current reality. So, yes, we can go from there. Uh, The way the theonomists would view this in-between section, between now and then, between A and B, would be that the Christian's job is to work in line with this shift and this traveling towards B. And so, we're headed towards the supremacy of the kingdom of God. Therefore, what the Christian should do is try to help get us closer to this reality of the kingdom of God. Some would take it so far as to say that that is the role of Christians. Our role is to bring the world into a position where all people and nations are under willingly under the authority of God, and that is possibly when Christ returns and we have heaven on earth and yeah, everything's perfect. And so that would be the end goal that some people see in the role that Christians would play. Uh, so far as I can tell, that's not universally accepted among all theonomists. Again, there's so many different opinions in this, just like many other theologies and religions. And so the main point that matters is that they see the kingdom of God as being the end result, and that their role is to help society get there. And that's what Christians should do. And the way that Christians help a nation to be subject and under the authority of God rightfully is that they use political means, they change laws and regulations, they elect rulers, these types of things that are in line with God's law and slowly shift things towards being all in all in line with God's law. And so that is the idea of theonomy. And again, a lot of theonomy I totally agree with. It's just this last bit, the bit that I've focused on, uh, that I would disagree with. But when you bring all of these things together, uh, it should make a lot of sense in the context of what we've been talking about, about technocracy, and uh, especially about like the way I'd laid out secular religion before getting into technocracy and the impact and how that leads directly to technocracy it's the same with uh, actual religion and Christianity, at least in these implementations. It's this idea that we are going to run society from a specific perspective. It's something that is effective and something that is efficient, something that is moral. And the, the goals are just different. So while a eugenicist would say that it is moral to do what's best for the human species as a whole, 
A Christian might say that it is moral to do good in all that you do. And those are two totally different things. If a uh, someone that's focused on secular technocracy, someone that might be woke, and they want to have an effective ruling governance system, then that might be something that is completely authoritarian, just completely. Whereas a Christian might say that an effective, effectively governed society is one where people are willingly obedient to follow the law of God, which is a different thing. But they are both focused on turning society into something that is effective, efficient, for the greater good, according to their religious beliefs, whether secular or Christian, and using the, the reality of a technological society that we have today to do so, and steering things first through an implementation with the state and with the government, and shifting into something more immaterial. And uh, although I didn't split this set of illusions up between material and immaterial, because I'm talking about the immaterial next time, that this material version you should be able to see both of those. This, like I've been talking about, it's a lot about using the state, using political means in order to achieve these Christian goals and values and God's law. And so this is something where they are materially using the hierarchy and setting up the hierarchy and doing this from a uh, very arborescent perspective. And as that gets implemented, their end goal is actually to not have a king. It's to not have a government the way we think of modern governments today. So their end goal would be to evolve into something more immaterial, just like the secular versions of technocracy that I talked about. The shift from 1984 to Brave New World is the same as the shift between a Constantinian uh, state and shifting into something that is purely theonomy implemented in a governance system. That That's a similar shift between the material and the immaterial, something that's arborescent and structural and hierarchical to something that's rhizomatic and decentralized and more immaterial. And so uh, that is something that, I guess, when you look at it from that perspective, it's very similar but again, they're very, very vastly different things because they're built on a different foundation. The secular versions that I talked about were built on the foundation of secular religion, on statism and scientism and wokeism. Those are very, very vastly different than Christianity, which is what the religious version is built on. And so what I want to do is, I guess, end here and next time, I'll pick up with what I would say is the more immaterial version of a religious side. And I don't think, I'll have to think about this a little more, I don't think I would classify what I'll be discussing next time as a version of technocracy. Not necessarily an immaterial technocracy, it's religious per se. But I would probably say it's an alternative to technocracy from this more immaterial perspective. So I think, and again, I'll have to think on this a little more between now and then, but I think what I would say is that 
the illusions that I covered today, the idea of the city of God and Calvin's views on in Geneva and theonomy, that these are the m- more material versions. And like I said, that that evolves and uh, basically written into their doctrine and theology is that that will evolve ultimately into something more immaterial and Christ's reign on earth over all peoples and all nations and this type of thing. And so that's something without... I guess as you get closer and closer to that, you don't necessarily have these same hierarchical, material, structured governments like you have today. It's not the modern state. And that would be the goal, is that you don't have the modern state, you have God, and you have God's law. You don't have the modern state with representatives and these laws and regulations that people vote on, because God's law is concrete, and that is what they would rely on. And that shifts from a more material to a more immaterial, and that's how you cover material, immaterial from a technocracy perspective. And then as I get into the idea of the kingdom of God, I think, I think that that is an alternative to technocracy. It is immaterial, and in a way it is material. Maybe both of these sets of illusions from the religious perspective are both material and immaterial. Maybe this one is more focused on the material, the next one is more focused on the immaterial, but they both have aspects of both. I guess that's true of even the secular ones. But we'll see when we get there. So it'll be something that I will get into. It's the idea of the kingdom of God. It's a more immaterial perspective. And I think I will classify that as an alternative to technocracy from the religious perspective, from an immaterial perspective. And that should wrap up this series on technocracy. I don't know if That'll be the last episode in this series. There might be one or two more, but uh, we're pretty much at the end, and that'll be the last set of illusions per se, and we'll start wrapping up maybe this season as a whole. We'll see. And so with that, I will say thank you very much to all of the supporters of the show. Supporters are people who have left a rating review, people who have given me feedback about the show, people that give money through Patreon or Subscribestar, people that just listen and are subscribed to the podcast and maybe tell other people about it. All of you are supporters, and I thank you so much for all of your support of all kinds. And with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been Our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.